Well, most certainly some of you are visiting with us this morning and uh, welcome. Uh, and uh, normally during the offering we'd have a song that we sing, but I think it's really appropriate this morning that we rest in silence. Uh, we weren't made for noise all the time. Sometimes we need silence. We need to meditate uh, upon the Lord if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Um, we need to think about his calling upon our lives. And so I really appreciate actually this morning that we have that, just that time of, of quiet, of silence here as we prepare our hearts and our minds to enter into a study of the word of God. So that's, that's different than normal, but I think it's good this morning. Uh, something else that's different that I'm going to do right now is uh, I'm going to wade into the deep end of the pool theologically. Uh, just in the beginning here, and then we're going to get into today's passage from Job. But last week, we watched as God allowed Satan to, to put a righteous man, Job, through intense suffering. And, and if you're like me, then, then when, when you were listening to Benjamin preach, and you were hearing the word of God read, and, and seeing God allow Satan to do this to Job, then, then your heart objected to it. You didn't like that very much. You think this isn't the way God is supposed to behave. I wonder if you can relate to those objections. I know I can. As your pastor, I I understand that feeling. I have that feeling in me. If we feel that way, however, we need to pause and consider our worldview for just a moment or two. Why do we think we know better than God does, what should or shouldn't happen to Job? Why do we think God's job is to keep us and Job from suffering, from pain, from inconvenience at all? How do we even know what the purpose of life is? Who's giving us our information, our view of things? We need to pause and ask those kinds of questions when we object to something like we see in the book of Job. Robert Frost, in his classic poem, Birches, I used to be an English teacher, I love the poem Birches. He has a line in it, uh, and I, I like the line, although I don't agree with it. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. And sometimes I wonder whether we don't too readily as Christians believe something similar about earth, something false about earth, like it's the right place for happiness and fulfillment and pleasure, like we can imagine a place where it's likely to go better than on this very planet on which we reside. I worry that we have unknowingly adopted our culture's worldview and therefore find the picture of God that we see in Job indefensible and unpalatable. We need to stop for a second and ask ourselves about our worldview, especially if we're believers, because the Bible offers a very different view of life. It's not the right place for love or happiness or fulfillment or pleasure. Yeah, you taste those here and now by the grace of God. They are blessings that in part we can know now. But the Bible says that this world is corrupt. You weren't created for it. 
You were created for a better world. You were created for a better life. And we need to recognize that. And we need to get that built into the DNA of our worldview if we want to follow Jesus Christ and we want to understand a book like the book of Job. We were created for a world without sin, a world without shame, and a world without pain. We weren't created for here. In fact, and this is essential, the greatest good we're told, if we read through our Bibles, the greatest good we can experience in this lifetime, on this planet, is to know and trust the Creator. Uh, To meet God, to know God evermore, and to cling to Him more and more tightly as we cling less and less to the things of this life. That's the worldview that the Bible says we are to have as Christians. The greatest good, the greatest treasure is God Himself. Knowing and loving Him. And so here's a new category perhaps for some of you, but it's a a category, a worldview that's indispensable if you're going to understand the picture of God that we get in Job. Here it is. It's not easy to hear. I want you to hear me say this with compassion and kindness and love for those of you who are in the midst of suffering or who have suffered, but this is the biblical category we are supposed to put God in and suffering in when we look at something like the book of Job. Here it is. If the Lord allows Job, or you, or me, to suffer in this lifetime for the purpose that we might come to know him and love him more, cling less to the things of this lifetime, if that's the purpose of suffering, then the Bible says, actually, that suffering is a blessing. It's right and it's good because it's leading us to the one true good that there is in all the universe. Relationship with our creator. And it will end up being the very thing that wipes every tear from every eye and sets all wrongs right. We have to be a people, if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, that have that concept of things, especially that concept of suffering. Or again, we can't make sense of a book like the book of Job, and we won't make sense of suffering in this lifetime when it comes upon us. So I hope I've said that in a way that you can at least understand. I want you to know that Benjamin and I, as pastors, want to say that in love, but we want to say that also as a firm truth that we need to, as as believers, embrace, all of us, in order to follow God through the good times and the bad times. I probably devoted too much of the sermon already talking about worldviews and how they can change our understanding of Scripture. I think it's important to say that, but I apologize if, if that was too much for you. Forgive me. So let's move on, though, today to, to, to today's passage in Job. And it is a longer passage. But before we, we get into that longer passage, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me because I need God in this time together. You need God. We need to hear from him. So will you bow your heads and pray in that direction with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth 
the meditations of my heart on this passage during the last couple of weeks would be acceptable before you. Anything that's of me, Lord, take out of the way. And what's of you, impress it upon our minds and our hearts. Use this message today to to transform us, to transform our worldview, to help us grow in our love of you and to cling to you ever more tightly. It is in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at a longer passage of Scripture, so if you're a regular, if you're here normally, uh, we're going to move forward a little differently. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to read the first part of the passage, and I'm going to preach on it. And then I'm going to read the the next part of the passage, and I'm going to preach on it and close. Uh, There's going to basically be two sections of Scripture that we look at individually here. And so let's do that. First, we're going to look at three wise men who come to Job's house to comfort Job. Uh, And then after we're done with that, we're going to get a picture into the suffering heart of Job. It is raw. And we're going to look at that to close. So first, the three wise men, Job chapter 2, verse 11, 12, and 13. Here's what the author of Job records for us. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come show Job sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Such intense suffering. these, These men are Job's closest friends. These aren't mere acquaintances that come to comfort Job. These aren't Facebook friends. I don't even know all the people that I'm friends with on Facebook. This is a tight-knit group. And these men love Job enough to travel great distances in order to bring him comfort, to be with him in his time of suffering. And that traveling was without a doubt inconvenient for each of them. These men put all their normal routines on hold. They had to pack up their things, arrange their affairs, and even... Go on a dangerous journey. I mean, we may not think that when we hear this, but travel in the ancient world was not safe. There were bandits out there. These men are putting a lot on the line to show up for somebody they love in order to bring comfort to a friend. Their effort as they try to care for Job, it's impressive. That is an impressive thing that they do here. We should see it as impressive, as love. We can learn from their example. You know, part of comforting someone when they're in the midst of tragedy is effort. A big part of it is simply putting forth effort. Effort to write a card to them. Effort to prepare a hot meal for them. Effort to drop whatever you're doing to weep alongside of them. And that effort goes a long way. To providing comfort. 
It is a tangible expression of your desire to be with them and to see them whole again, not broken by tragedy. Effort goes a long way when we're talking about comfort. Sometimes, though, we're hesitant when we see a friend who's in the midst of tragedy uh, to come and comfort them. Uh, We may think to ourselves, I don't really have anything to offer this person. Their tragedy is so great. What can I do? Or we may think, you know what? They don't want me to show up. I'm going to be an intrusion if I show up there. There's nothing that I have that they want. But I think when we think that way, I really think, once again, we... We're not in line with a biblical worldview. We've actually started taking our cues about comfort and caring for people from the world around us. The Apostle Paul tells us comfort is a Christian's business. That's what he says. It's to be what we're about as followers of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Paul says this is to be your business if you're a follower of Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our, all our afflictions. Now hear this part right here. Why did he do that? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by. Christians are to be in the comfort business when friends and family acquaintances that we care about are in the midst of tragedy. We're to be the first responders, people who come to love them, care for them, provide for their needs. That's who we're supposed to be. I'm not going to say very many positive things about these three wise men today, these three friends of Job who show up on the scene, but they get an A for effort. They get an A for effort. They're doing the hard work of trying to show up for their friend and bring him comfort in the midst of his suffering. They get an A for effort. We should learn from their example and go and be a people who do likewise when we see those who are suffering. That's our calling if we're followers of Jesus. Another thing we need to know about the three men is that they're supposed to represent the wisdom of the world. Now, that does not jump off the page at us when we read this passage today. But for the original reader, it would have been apparent that that these men represented wisdom, the wisdom of the world. Um, the, The clue is in the regions which these three men call home, especially the region of Edom. You can go to Obadiah verse eight. Obadiah doesn't have chapters, it's just a passage and has verses. So Obadiah verse eight, you see that The recognition of Edom as a place of wisdom is there in the Bible. Also, Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7, you see a similar thing. Edom was known as a place of wisdom. One commentator sums it up this way. We have here not just three kind and loyal friends, but three wise friends who between them represent, as it were, the combined resources of the wisdom of the world. We got to see that if we're to understand this passage and the rest of Job well. And and as we read this, if that's the case, if they represent the wisdom of the world, we should be thinking this is great news right now in the narrative. This is great news. Help has arrived. 
Job has uh, grief counselors from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton at his door. And they're not just the greatest grief counselors that the world has to offer. These are also close friends, and they've shown up. Help has arrived. We should be like, this is good news for Job. If anyone in the world, if anyone in the world has hope to offer Job, these guys have it. They're going to give it to him. Now, I'm not going to make much of that today. That little truth, that little piece of this narrative, Benjamin's going to pick up on it next week. What that truth should do for us, though, is say, okay, if these three represent the wisdom of the world, the best that the world has to offer Job in the midst of his tragedy and his grief, what is the answer that it provides? That wisdom. What answers does it bring? What comfort does it bring to Job? The author of Job wants us to ask that question as we look at the comfort that they provide in the coming weeks. So keep that question in mind. Before we move on to point two, allow me to offer some practical uh, suggestions in terms of comfort. I'm not like great at comfort. In fact, I'd consider myself to be pretty weak, but I have been in the room when people who have the, the gift of mercy are, are operating their beautiful science upon someone in the midst of suffering. And so what do you do when you watch somebody who's good at this kind of thing? You take notes and you think that's something I need to learn. So here's some things if you're encountering somebody in the midst of suffering that you can do practically just to be a good caregiver. Here's some things that I've noticed people who have the gift of mercy do. First, be comfortable with silence. Be comfortable with silence. Do not fill the silence up with with talk about the weather or talk about sports. Do not tell jokes to try to to get their mind off of what they have just experienced. Don't cheapen their grief in that way. Be comfortable with silence. I think these comforters that come to Job do a tremendous job of just sitting with him, weeping with him, caring for him in the midst of his tragedy. Be comfortable with silence. Second, give them your ear. Listen to them. Intently, every word, give them your ear. They may say things that aren't true about life. They may say things that aren't true about God. Do not play at Bible answer man or Bible answer woman. Don't do that. Don't try to correct their bad theology in the moment of their pain. They cannot receive it then. But listen to them. Weep with them. Care for them. Finally, be brief unless they ask you to stay. I I find short, frequent visits are often better than one long visit. And and when you come for one of those short visits, I really encourage you to bring some kind of practical care, right? A hot meal or some some basic groceries or some cleaning supplies. Not so you can can be like, hey, now you can clean your bathroom, but so that you can clean their bathroom, so that you can do it for them. Now, one of my advisors, when I was in seminary, he had gone through a lot of suffering in his lifetime and had been there for others as well who had suffered. 
He said, one of the things my small group does is we just go to their house when they're there. We ask them just to let us in so we can clean their bathrooms. And then we, we pray for them when we leave. I think it's something you can think about doing, right? We can all do these kinds of things, put forth this kind of effort when we want to love somebody who's in the midst of pain. Well, we need to move to the second part of today's text. And here we're going to see Job's intense feelings of pain. Uh, they're going to sit for seven days in silence, and then Job is going to speak. We're going to see here a suffering man, Job chapter 3. Here's what the author records in Job chapter 3. And this, by the way, is going to be poetry. And I'm going to make a comment about that after I'm done reading it. But this is poetry. From here on out in the book of Job, most of it's poetry. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth and said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let the darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, and as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the greater there. And the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not. And dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? Whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. That's a picture, a view into Job's heart at this moment. It's raw. It's raw. Less than an hour ago, we were praising the Lord for the birth of a little baby, beautiful little Esme. We're dedicating ourselves uh, to loving her, 
loving her parents, helping them to help her along. And she understands the gospel and, and we pray comes to know the Lord. Job is doing almost precisely the opposite thing here. Job is cursing the day of his birth. He's looking back on that day and saying, I wish it had never happened. Curse that day. I wish it didn't exist on the calendar. Job is lamenting here in question after question. Lord, what are you doing? Lord, why all this suffering? Lord, what possible purpose could it have to bring you glory? That's where Job's at. It's it's no wonder that his friends come from such a great distance and just sit in silence. They saw that his suffering was very great. Job chapter 2 verse 13. They saw how much pain he was in. They don't have anything to say to Job, rightly. They make a good decision. They just shut up and weep in dust with him. Let me say two things, and then we're going to close. Two things about the raw heart of Job. First, as I mentioned before, this section is poetry. You don't read poetry in the same way that you read prose. You don't. If you do, you're going to have all kinds of mistaken interpretations. Poetry is impressionistic. You bring the images together in poetry... Many times they're hyperbole. That means they're exaggerations for the point of effect. But you bring these images together, these exaggerated images even, and you get the overall impression. What is Job in the midst of? That's how we're supposed to read this passage and the other poetic passages as well. So when we're reading the poetry in Job, don't press the details too far, but look instead for the larger images and the overall impressions of each section. And when you do that with this passage, what you see is a man who's at a crossroads in his life. Everything that Job thought was true, his worldview, everything, it's on its head. It's been turned upside down. He doesn't know how to make sense of it anymore. And so he's saying... Wouldn't it have been better if I just didn't exist? He's at a crossroads. And he's being honest before God here and his friends. He's saying, this is where I'm at. I'm confused. I'm alone. I suffer so much that I just wish it was over. And... There needs to be a place for honesty in the midst of suffering. There needs to be a place for honesty in the midst of suffering. We're not meant to pretend. And that brings us to the second thing I need to say. When you face suffering, like the suffering that Job is in the midst of this scene, When you face suffering like this, you have questions like these questions, questions about God's purposes. I want to tell you right now, you should ask them. 
Honestly, you should bear your heart before God. And here's why I'm saying that. Sometimes we, we back away from that. Oh, no, I can't do that. No, that's the biblical model. I see this throughout the Bible. Those in the midst of suffering who come honestly to God with their objections, with their suffering, with their confusion and say, how long, oh Lord? What's going on here, God? Think of Psalm 22 or Psalm 88. If you go look at those psalms, you will see the psalmist there in the midst of suffering asking honest questions of God. Psalm 88, there is not a glimmer of light, but the psalmist nonetheless comes to God faithfully with questions, knowing that if there is help to be found, it is in his creator's hands. Or you could go to Jesus hanging on the cross, couldn't you? Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you left me? Honest questions faithful questions and going to the God of all creation and saying, you have the answers. The answers can't be found anywhere else. Where are you, Lord? I believe that when we come to God with these kinds of questions faithfully, it is an act of worship. The only thing you can do that's worse than being irreverent with God is trying to hide your irreverent heart from God. He sees it. He knows it's there. Bear it to him faithfully. Lord, you know my heart, Job says. Here's where I'm at. I have no clue what's going on. One commentator says it this way. God prefers we speak with him honestly even in our moments of deepest gloom than that we mouth innocuous cliches far removed from reality. Do not be about innocuous cliches. Lord, don't worry, I'm going to be a trooper. Is that where your heart's at? Really? We need to be a people as believers who are willing to be open and honest before our God. He sees us perfectly. He already knows. Part of this process as we go through suffering is learning to bring everything before him, even our objections. That, friends, is what Job is doing here. He knows that God knows his heart, and so he's going to bear it before him. And uh, we, we shouldn't try to hide our hearts either. I think we need to know that as a people. We need to know that as a people who comfort those in suffering. We need to know that as a people who suffer. And I want to say one thing in closing here, because I think it's important from our place in redemptive history that we see something. Job has real questions that don't really have answers from where he's at. What's going on with suffering, Lord? Why was he even born, Lord? What's the purpose with all this, Lord? He doesn't have any answers, no clue. He's in the dark. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and this is incredibly important for you to hear, you are not in the place that Job is in this scene, ever, no matter how intense your suffering is. 
because you know that God has not forsaken you. The gospel tells us that God will never forsake us. God turned his face from Jesus, poured out his wrath on Christ at the cross so that he would never have to do that with you if you trust in Jesus Christ. You are privy to the resurrection. You know the hope we have that one day we will be raised from the dead to walk perfectly in glory with our God. You are not in the place that Job is at. You are not in that kind of darkness. You, in the worst of times, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, have hope. A hope that is certain. And a promise that the very things you're going through are the kinds of things that are going to refine you, purify you, and bring you to greater faith in your God. And one day, that very God who cares for you and loves you is going to wipe tears from your eyes and pick you up and hug you and love you and comfort you so that you will never need that kind of comfort again. That's the promise we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray and then um, we'll close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the burden of suffering that you bore for us. And we thank you even for your purposes as we experience suffering in this lifetime. This is not our home. Help us to keep our sights set on glory with you. That is our final resting place and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. Help us to be a people who believe that. Make us a comforting people, the kind of people who are quick to love on those in the midst of pain and suffering. And Lord, in all of this, bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.